And we welcome you to the Tuesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. And for the first time in 2022, I'm very pleased to welcome back into our studios Dr. Art Sear, Clausen, Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage College, author of After the Cold War, a columnist whose work appears all over the place, including the Kenosha News, the Chicago Tribune, and all kinds of newspapers across the country. And uh, we are fortunate that uh, in his busy schedule, he makes time for the morning show on a monthly basis. He's been a regular visitor to the morning show for more than 20 years, actually. So a fixture, as they say. And uh, we're happy to be able to talk with him about a variety of topics uh, in each of these monthly visits. And Professor Sear, we welcome you back to the morning show. Happy New Year. Well, thank you. Thank you for such a warm uh uh, kind introduction. So it's nice to have a warm word on a cold morning, as <laughs> the Kyle said to the farmer. And uh, here's to 20 more. Yeah, here we go. Yes, and it is a cold morning out there for sure. We have a lot to talk about. You've written on some really uh, interesting topics uh, as as of late. And actually, I want to talk with the one uh, that focuses on a four-letter word that starts with F, and that word is fear. And uh, you have you have some important things to say about fear, and especially about uh, the way in which fear can be, in your words, an infectious public menace. So, this is something that we've touched on uh, before, but uh, clearly it's a it's a concern of paramount importance to you at the moment for probably a couple of different reasons, but. Uh, Tell our listeners what prompted you to uh, devote one of, I think, maybe your very first column of 2022 to the topic of fear. Well, actually, I think you're referring to the column that was titled Good News for the New Year, referring essentially to positive developments right. uh, in in our life, which it's important to emphasize uh, any time, but particularly in the current time when we are so preoccupied, quite understandably, with the public health problem. Um, President Franklin Roosevelt's inaugural address, first inaugural, I believe, uh, was the, uh, in, in included the immortal line, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed action. And the president himself, of course, is probably all listeners know, uh, but was not universally known at the time, had, had lost use of his legs thanks to polio, which was a scourge, into the mid-1950s when the sock vaccine was developed. Um, I don't minimize the importance or the tragedy if people are seriously afflicted by the current public health problem. But in point of fact, public health is a lot better than it used to be, and, and a lot of other things are too. Right. You know, it's interesting. As you were reciting those words, um, <laughs> my first reaction, is, as I've heard them you know, time and time again, but my very first reaction to the first words of, of Roosevelt is, that's not true. There are plenty of things we <laughs> should fear. I mean, it, it, it isn't that there aren't things in the world in which we should be fearful. It's really, I'm so glad you went on to say the next words after that. I mean, in which he, in a sense... Uh, talks or clarifies the kind of fear that he's talking about. And and he also, in, in very few but very effectively chosen words, really 
clarifies why that kind of fear is such a problem because, in a sense, it keeps us from doing what needs to be done. So, uh, But I don't think I've ever really stopped to think about those first words in, in the way that I, that I did, uh, did just now. Um, oh, good. So what would you say in terms of this current situation? How, how do you see this playing out most harmfully? I mean, where do you see fear emerging or erupting in a way that is truly counterproductive? Well, I think the operative phrase is paralyzes needed action. Uh, fear can prevent you from overcoming hurdles. And one reason why um, the human species has lasted as long as we have and probably will last at least through the year and <laughs> a good deal longer, although nothing is forever, is um, that we have an unusual ability to survive, adopt, and innovate um, to a remarkable degree. And in fact, there's nothing new about public health problems. Uh, age does bring some advantages as well as the as fairly obvious uh, uh, growth and uh, limitations and other problems the um, uh, sheer decline in physical energy, but you do get some insight if you're lucky. And I'm old enough to remember the Hong Kong flu in 1968. Mm. About 300,000, mostly young men, returning overwhelmingly from the standard one-year tour in Vietnam during our long, uh, difficult war there, spread the Hong Kong flu. Um, I recall President Lyndon Johnson was in the hospital for about two weeks, including intensive care. Wow. I recall law enforcement as well as military police and hospital workers and first responders wearing masks, but this was just before the uh, computer revolution and related communications revolution that really kicked off in the 70s. So you went to work Mm. because the vast mass of people needed a paycheck as people need to be paid today when they're working. And um, uh, But in those days, we did not have the cushion of wealth that we have today. We also did not have technology, so you simply went to work, and a public health problem was not something to be politicized or something that became a nonstop obsession of a good part of the media and a certain part of the population. Hmm. But you just worked through it. So it's a sign of our wealth and relative security that we're able to react and attack the way we are. Uh, it's quite extraordinary that a vaccine was developed in less than a year. And I grudgingly um, grant some credit to former President Trump, who really made this a number one national priority as a sensible approach to the pandemic. I don't minimize the seriousness of it, but human history is a remarkable story of overcoming barriers of different kinds. Hmm. One interesting turn of phrase in the column was when you said, Extraordinary prosperity permits the extraordinary measures taken to combat the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think you know, one of the things you're doing there is maybe drawing a contrast to uh, the, the more limited means we had at our disposal to combat, the, for instance, the so-called Spanish flu, the misnamed Spanish flu of 1918, you know, another pandemic that raged through a very different world. And the means we've had now... Uh, to combat this serious threat from COVID, it drastically different, and we don't sometimes maybe stop to appreciate that. Uh, yes, it is. And uh, a point made, I guess, in an earlier column is that the media has obsessed about the so-called Spanish flu, which probably originated in China, again, a century ago. But there have been a series of public health problems between then and now. 
the Hong Kong flu, the Asian flu in the 50s. Uh, schools were closed. At least my elementary school was closed for a few days and as, as a much more limited effort of people to respond to this difficulty. One of the blessings, and there's not really a blessing, but one of the uh, um, less destructive aspects of the current pandemic is that young people are relatively uh, immune, which was not the case during the Hong Kong flu in the late 60s. It could be quite devastating. Right. And of course, the polio uh, epidemic is another example of a, of something that really hit young people so hard, exceptionally hard. I don't want to personalize this too much, but one of my earliest memories was uh, having an operation for a congenital condition unrelated to uh, uh, polio infantile paralysis, which was for, fortunately successful when I was very small. And I must have been about five or six years old when I my dad uh, came to pick me up finally, and I walked out of the hospital after being there for about a week, um, and uh, or maybe less, and going through the polio ward, just endless, these big mm. iron lungs, big metal and steel machinery, uh, for those who aren't aware of them, and all you could see was the person's head sticking out of the, you know, uh, people were supine, and... Um, to a remarkable degree, it was children, infants, mm. people my age and younger, and mm. I was absolutely horrified. I remember really clutching his hand as mm. we went out, and it was uh, you know, Eisenhower had tears in his eyes, unusual for that particular president, unlike <laughs> some others. But Ike was re- as a grand. He referred to the fact that he was a grandparent, and when he was announcing the success of the sock vaccine and giving. Uh, quite appropriate public rec- recognition to Dr. Sock and his team in 55. <coughs> so in that sense, we're much better off. But uh, we also are much more easily upset and I think much more easily become fearful. Mm. You do write at one point, I mean, and you're, and you're correct, that, that actually what this column is, is mostly about are some of the great advancements, the progression that has been made over over the last decades, particularly when it comes to something like prosperity. And you cite really striking statistics about how, uh, how we see actually much less severe poverty around the world than we once Around the did. world, that's right, yeah. even compared to four decades ago. Right. The and World you... Bank is, excuse me for getting excited here, but... Uh, that's particularly good when you're older, that you get excited sometimes. Uh, the World Bank is a particularly good resource for actual hard data on how incredibly, uh, really dire, severe poverty, uh, re- real destitution has been shrinking in the world. Right. And and you summarize all that by saying destitution is no longer the norm. And yeah. once upon a time, the majority of the world lived in in abject poverty and in very, very unsafe conditions. And really, globally speaking, that situation has improved dramatically. I, I think the the downside of that or the underbelly of that is is that you're talking about how because of that, we are in a sense more vulnerable uh, to fear. Oddly yeah. enough, you write at one point, uh, the good news is we are so secure today that anything less is a shock. The bad news is that we have become extremely vulnerable to fear. I suppose we're vulnerable to anything that threatens uh, what just seems like uh, a nearly idyllic existence, not to overstate it too much, but I mean that that is one consequence Mm -hmm. uh, of of when there isn't kind of that 
daily grind of difficulty that once was just a normal part of so many people's lives. And because we are such a distinctively rich and secure country, perhaps it's something every person should make up his or her own mind about, but because we are so rich, perhaps we are particularly vulnerable to fear. We have always been the standout. You know, millions of people are literally clamoring to get into this country, uh, not because we're such a bad place, but because we provide to a remarkable degree individual opportunity and security to the average person. Uh, might be a little hard to believe if you are focused obsessively just on the daily headline news, but that is the fact, and that was the case in the 17 and 1800s as well as more recently right. and today. We're speaking with Dr. Art Sear, Clausen, Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage College uh, and uh, a monthly visitor to the morning show, a frequent uh, visitor to WUWM as well, uh, our public radio neighbors up to the north. Uh, one of the things, Professor uh, Sear, I wanted to do today is uh, not long after, just a couple of days after the one-year anniversary of uh, President Biden's inauguration, I thought we might uh, at least briefly kind of take a look back over what has been a tough first year for President Biden, I think most people would say, and I know that uh, on a couple of different occasions, you've had uh, pretty strong criticism of, of the current president, for, particularly uh, about the way our withdrawal from Afghanistan was handled or mishandled, however you want to, to, to characterize that. Um, overall, how would you characterize uh, this first year of President Biden's administration? Well, as you say, it's been a difficult year for him. Uh, he really fell through the floor in terms of public opinion, public support measured in opinion polls during the disastrous, chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I don't believe he's recovered any ground since then. He's he dropped precipitously, and he's been kind of slowly deteriorating since. Uh, he's um, had, had difficulty getting his extraordinarily ambitious legislative program through Congress, uh, there is good evidence, reliable evidence that the public at large does not support uh, the very ambitious reform program that he wants, with the exception of the infrastructure bill, which was passed by both houses and signed last November. Uh, the, um, what, what's, what's been held up as a much more ambitious set of uh, mostly social and uh, welfare and voting legislation that the Democrats want, and given an even divide in the Senate and a bare majority in the House, they haven't been able to get it. But infrastructure is one major success long overdue, uh, especially referring to highways, uh, but not just highways, ports, transportation of all kinds. The country built an infrastructure for the modern world, very different from the world before World War II, uh, with great foresight. But the 1950s were quite a long time ago, mm -hmm. and for some time things have been overdue. So to give the president some credit, I think he and his team deserve it for getting this vital legislation through. Hmm. I, uh, w My wife and I were down in Little Rock, Arkansas uh, over New Year's, and oh, uh, we were, uh, we were kind of horrified at the state of a lot of the uh, high-rise bridges and and uh, the highways around around there. I mean, I think sometimes when you drive on certain highways all the time, you just kind of take their wear and tear for granted. And then when you're suddenly kind of 
dropped into a brand new place and you're seeing it for the very first time, uh, it just seemed like exhibit A of what's wrong with our infrastructure. And we probably shouldn't underestimate the significance of that uh, infrastructure uh, uh, situation, which has, as you said, been deteriorating for a long, long time and I guess just pushed off again and again. Very hard to accomplish. Uh, Arkansas is a very poor state, nothing no political uh, significance or social or anything else. Wait, it is just literally a poor state. I believe it is the one state that went bankrupt during the Great Depression. Hmm. Uh, politicians will talk about states being bankrupt and states being broke, and a recent Republican governor of Wisconsin declared that as soon as he took office. Total baloney because states have taxing authority. But Arkansas is a, a poor state. Hmm. Uh, I'm very much a northerner, but I did spend some time in the South, in the U.S. Army, wherever you go in the U.S. Army, you're in the South, I can assure you, given the, mil- the, na- the nature of our military, co- land military culture. Uh, but um, it is a poor part of the country that's changing. Mm. But Arkansas is still a country that's got a lot of challenges, uh, a state that's got a lot of challenges. Right. So anyway, uh, President Biden can look at that. Uh, yeah. That accomplishment of getting the infrastructure bill through, uh, a lot of other things have been uh, a, a, a tough road for President Biden. If you were in a position to advise him, uh, what would you advise him to do from this point on as he heads into year number two of his administration? Show that you're in charge. Uh, when you're the president of the United States, you have tremendous, almost endless opportunities in public relations terms, but also in more tangible terms to use your presence, your persona, to show that you, in fact, are in charge. And great presidents, uh, before or after the radio and TV age began, uh, have had that capacity. And so far, um, obviously, he he has not been able to do that. I would encourage him to talk less. He's got a weakness for off-the-cuff commentary that I think, especially regarding foreign policy and military matters, is um, uh, it's something that should be used judiciously. And I wish he'd talk less and find more ways to show that, in fact, he is the chief executive and not at the mercy of events. But if if not with words, how would you want him to do that, or how oh, do you the, Well, the right the right kind of trip, the right kind of photo op. Ah. Look, look at the way Franklin Roosevelt conducted himself. Dwight Eisenhower, quite underestimated, or Kennedy and Reagan, two recent presidents who were quite talented as using the, the if you will, the public media to show themselves in in effective and interesting ways. By the way, uh, recently in in the headlines has been this thing called the filibuster and uh, the possibility of filibuster uh, reform. Is that something you personally would like to see happen? No, I wouldn't. I think that um, uh, our Constitution should be tinkered with very cautiously and carefully and the same applies to legislative rules. Uh, when the administration is trouble is in trouble, including Franklin Roosevelt's when he was trying to get uh, very radical for the time New Deal legislation through, um, and and finally put in sustained manner into law, there's a natural tendency to try to change institutions. In Roosevelt's mm-hmm. case, it was to pack the Supreme Court. Uh, and expand the numbers, something that hasn't happened since shortly after the Civil War. 
uh, he he was decisively defeated, even though he had vast, overwhelming majorities of his party in both houses of Congress. And I think the current Democratic effort reflects the same kind of frustration. Uh, Expanding the Supreme Court was part of the Democratic Party platform in 2020, and something was emphasized especially by um, now Vice President Kamala Harris, a very misguided idea, and I think it reflects the fact that these things are not only difficult to do, but should be difficult to do, that that's Hmm. faded quickly from, she brings it up from time to time, but that's faded quickly from public discussion. But I'm basically conservative. I appreciate being on your your program. There are lots of very different points of view that are available on public radio on a daily basis. Let's talk about another president. Let's talk about President Vladimir Putin. Ah. You wrote uh, a real interesting (laughs) column about... President Putin, a very interesting man, for now sure. Now there's leadership. <laughs> yeah, right, I suppose. Young uh, man. Uh, one, one kind of leadership, I suppose. What? Uh, explain to our listeners who didn't see your column, perhaps. Uh, well, they can that, find it on the Internet. There you go. But if they haven't already, uh, <coughs> explain what the specific event, the <coughs> annual event, as it turns out, that uh, that prompted you to write about President Putin, this annual event that occurs towards the end of the year? He holds a press conference, which is a stellar event. Um, He went on for about four hours. He's also getting up in years. We were alluding to age earlier. It was quite a uh, bravura performance. It was theatrical. Uh, It was just him there on a stage. I believe it was a live Uh, I should reread my own column. I assure you I wrote it. It was a live um, press conference before four or 500 journalists. Mm -hmm. Um, Last year it was previous. Yeah, last year it was, uh, year before last, it was um, remote from the mansion he lives in, this man of the people, (laughs) in a very wealthy (laughs) suburb of Moscow. Mm. He... um, Uh, has a tremendous command of factual information. And in terms of the theater of showing you're in charge, he really is in charge. Mm. Uh, He also gives some indication of um, what he might be. He's someone who plays his cards very close to his vest, as smart politicians do, but he's someone who really understands the theater of leadership. He has been declining in popularity. They have public opinion polls in the in the former Soviet Union, not just Russia, that really means something, which shows how much the world is changing in our direction, Mm. incredibly. He is a distinctive leader in the sense that um, historically, in modern times, Russian leaders, Soviet leaders during the communist era, they tend to be boring, Mm. rather gray bureaucrats, including Joseph Stalin. Nikita Khrushchev was the interesting lively, exciting, very um, contrary example. With some personality. And exactly. So, yeah. uh, far too much personality, including during, before and during the Cuban Missile Crisis. But the, he was pretty unusual. Uh, it's mostly good gray men. Putin is something really different. And he's probably survived for two decades, says the professor from the safe sidelines. But how, do, how does this guy do it? Uh, he has produced real improvement in the terrible economic conditions in, in Russia. Russia was about to go bankrupt at the turn of the century, and he deserves credit for bringing them back. But um, he also uses theater very, very effectively. Hmm. 
Yeah, it's a, a f- really fascinating character. Yeah. One of the things you said is that uh, over the course of this news conference, uh, one thing became really, really clear, and it's something that uh, the media, by and large, has scarcely paid any attention to, and that is how the economy of Russia has dramatically changed, tilting decisively towards <clears throat> capitalism. Uh, and uh, this is something that I, I think most of us have heard really anything about. And I well, guess it, we're so obsessed with Ukraine, or the media is. Right, One right. reason your program is valuable is you go beyond the immediate obsessions of the, <laughs> of the of moment. The media. Yeah. So it, explain his comments about, I think, the central bank of Russia and, and what he was, in a sense, describing and 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 kind of the reality of kind of a new Russia that he's actually talking about that not too many people are paying attention to. Uh, yes, they put in place, along with needed reforms after the after communism failed, a more dramatic transformation than what the uh, ruling clique in China is trying to do, maintain a communist party's grip on the society while liberalizing the economy. Can't be done over the long term, I believe, but they're sure as hell trying. Uh, the Russians have been more realistic, perhaps of necessity, but they put in place a market economy and they have an independent central bank as do we and any other country that wants to actually be successful uh, during and since the Industrial Revolution. I believe the current head of the central bank is a woman. Um, Hmm. It is a truly capitalist financial institution, and he referred with considerable sophistication to the importance of having uh, stable money, a sensible monetary policy, and an independent this very dictatorial man by nature, uh, who's also a killer. He made his he made his name professionally as uh, a star in the KGB, the Soviet secret police in uh, East Germany, probably the most totalitarian state in history. Hmm. Uh, you know, this unlike us and the British and the French, the Soviets left a lot of the Nazi infrastructure in place and simply built on top of it. A huge percentage of the East German population were, in fact, government agents hmm. for either the uh, the East German or the Soviet government. Anyway, I digress. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, he demonstrates considerable economic sophistication and realism. And uh, you know, we unless you really probe in the serious media, we're so obsessed. In this case, Ukraine was what got all the attention. But he said a number of things rather specifically that showed a very realistic grasp of the tough problems they're facing. Right. And you characterize it at one point as the abandonment of the previous state-controlled command economy. Yes, it because is it doesn't work. Yeah. It literally does not work. And the Soviet Union collapsed because it eventually it does not work. Fellow, fellow Americans, when you're feeling particularly disheartened, when, when you're out of a job or facing a terrible illness, perhaps related to the current pandemic, our system does work to a remarkable degree. Mm. And if you keep going, you will, you will improve your condition. There are ways. Mm. Um, unless you're really severely afflicted, physically or mentally or both. Russia has a large population of people who were literally desperate. Uh, again, in the 90s and at the turn of the century, things have improved somewhat for them, but not enough. 
and uh, he is someone who's got to be concerned. Clearly, he is. Mm-hmm. A lot of the uh, fostering and uh, military moves related to Ukraine are related to the fact that he is in serious trouble at long last at home. Right. Yeah, you tell the story of this uh, <clears throat> uh, notable Russian dissident, Alexei uh, Navalny, oh, yeah. uh, in prison. A real hero. Right. And you, you say he personifies a uh, limited but growing opposition to the Putin regime. So, uh, and Putin has to be aware of this. Absolutely. And he tries to make light of it. Uh, I refer to his uh, interesting KGB background. He said during the um, the press conference, conference either this year or last, this one or the previous one, that look, if we wanted to really, if we were really serious about this individual, if we were really concer- concerned about him, we would have finished the job. He wouldn't be breathing and talking now. Hmm. Uh, he was poisoned with a nerve agent that's a Soviet KGB specialty. Ironically, in some ways, he was evacuated um, by special aircraft beyond control of the state um, to Germany. And um, it sounds something like Nabolchek, a very esoteric, very lethal nerve agent. German doctors um, concluded that that was what afflicted him. Navalny survived, uh, terribly stricken physically, and he still is. He went back to Russia uh, and was immediately arrested. But they can't muzzle him completely, and there is tremendous public support for him. Hmm. This is the kind of thing that that has to worry someone like Putin. Hmm. The alternative to whom, mind you, would not be someone better from our point of view. We're not going to get a Russian-speaking Barack Obama, for instance, (laughs) say... Any, if Putin goes down, and I hope he doesn't, it'll be something far, a leader far more extreme and probably mm. far more inclined to use violence. Well, that's the communists aren't coming back, and there's no indication they're going to move in any dramatically liberal directions. Mm. <coughs> well, be, speaking of people who should be worried, someone else who should be worried is uh, British Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson, uh, thanks to some really surprising election results from the middle of December. This was right after you visited us the last time. Uh, first of all, uh, you should probably explain what these elections, what this election was uh, in, in mid-December. You called it in your column a by-election, B-Y hyphen election. Um, and it was uh, a stunning victory for the Liberal Democrats, a stunning defeat uh, for the conservatives. Uh, explain to our listeners what this election was and why these results were so shocking. The British have general elections for members of the House of Commons, the lower house of their parliament. The House of Lords is the um, upper house, kind of like our Senate, mm-hmm. but different, uh, still based heavily on heredity, but also uh, non-hereditary appointment. But the general election elects the House of Commons. It's like our presidential and congressional elections held every two years for the House of Representatives. Um, By-elections are like a special election in this country when a seat becomes vacant. Mm. I believe a conservative member of a seat that had been held by the conservative party forever, for like 200 years, was forced to resign in effect because of a corruption problem. He He was lobbying in ways that go beyond the law in their system. And the conservatives assumed they were going to win. The third party, the Liberal Democrats, 
took the seat, which really was an extraordinary victory. And that's kind of a tip of an iceberg of what is now public rage at the prime minister and his government, uh, partly because they were doing a lot of partying. Insane, actually, Mm. uh, from any common sense point of view, but Boris Johnson is kind of like that. They were breaking their own COVID rules. Oh, with, the, with parties and yes, doing it while the, pu- the public was locked down, and they right. had a very severe lockdown, and COVID has been a severe problem for that country in some ways more than ours. Um, they're more constrained geographically, among other things. The British talk about fair play. I was very, very blessed to live there for a year when I was working on my PhD dissertation. It was my first, really, first experience overseas. And... Um, it is a very law-abiding culture, and there's <clears throat> a lot of integrity in day-to-day life that impressed me then and impresses me now. And it's not just my Anglophile bias. And that kind of behavior will really set them off. Mm. He is also a very strange character. I think of him as our their kind of version of Donald Trump. He's not a typical political leader, and he came up very quickly in a time of turbulence in their system for them in a way that did not indicate a broad base of public support. He was mayor of London. In their system and ours, you don't normally go from being a mayor to being a major national political figure. Hmm. Um, Hubert Humphrey is one dramatic exception in our system, but there aren't many. Uh, He was elected party leader... um, by a relatively small small vote um, within the conservative party, so in many ways it's it's a fascinating career, kind of a fluke maybe in some ways. Like yeah, the, but his bad habits. Um, if he'd been around longer and had a more conventional career path, I guess I'm trying to say, uh, he probably would have gotten in trouble earlier. Mm. And he is in trouble. You're, one of the things you say in this column is that even apart from this specific election that ha- happened in North uh, Shropshire, that there are other indications that other parties are really gaining ground on the conservatives. <clears throat> yes. And, and he's, he should be worried. Well, I was uh, in Britain many years ago, 69, 70, and I was working on the liberals, now the liberal Democrats. And people would laugh at me, not the liberals, of course, but they really would get kind of sarcastic and not just devoted members of the other. The liberals, why? Because it was a dominant two-party system, the conservatives and labor. Mm. And now the Scottish National Party, the SNP, has a significant parliamentary representation in Westminster. They now dominate uh, Scotland. The Welsh National Party's Plaid Cymru has less dramatically um, gained strength in the decades since. And the liberals, after becoming liberal Democrats, were part of the first coalition government since World War II. So my thesis, which I developed as a young person, has been confirmed. So (laughs) no one's laughing anymore, Professor Berg. Not me. Okay, (laughs) exactly. I will be glad to laugh on your program. All right. I won't. (laughs) So uh, let's go around the world. you wrote recently about, uh, in your words, North Korea once again rattling the cage. Yes. And, uh, and of course, it, some of what's going on there in terms of more uh, 
provocative talk and missile tests and so on uh, really generates headlines. And uh, one of the things that you regret about that, I think, is that it it pulls our attention away from the tremendous success story, which is in uh, South Korea, which, in your words, is moving from strength to strength under uh, their current president, uh, <coughs> Moon Jae-in. Yeah. Um, um, tell us, tell us more about you know how you see this current situation. Um, North Korea has set off a, uh, I think, not th- four ballistic missiles within a two-week period. They've also tested cruise missiles. Um, they've had a nuclear weapons capability since about 2006, and in one sense, it's nothing new. Um, there's nothing new about the technology, actually. Ballistic, ballistic missiles, the first, were developed by Nazi Germany <coughs> and used with great effect against the civilian population of Britain, speaking of that great country, in the last um, nine months or so of the Second World War. That was the V-2 rocket. Uh, the V-1 was an early cruise missile. These are particularly insidious weapons, and the Germans used them uh, against the British to great devastation as well. Uh, And it meant that Eisenhower and the Allies uh, basically changed our strategy to go into the low countries as quickly as possible to take out these very, very lethal bases. Um, Cruise missiles, um, the contemporary version, they're radar-guided, they're pre-programmed, they can also be our drones, our variation on that technology, which can be controlled right up to the point of impact. Uh, they're hard to detect because they fly so low on radar. Mm. They're, um, they can be rather difficult to shoot down if they have a particularly tricky and devious course. These are very insidious weapons, and the fact that North Korea is testing them is um, should be a cause for concern and is, I believe... Uh, in the Korean Peninsula, as in Europe, um, with Ukraine and other matters, we should be encouraging as much as possible the populations directly involved to take care of this as a problem in their backyard. So I believe we should be encouraging the South Korean government, (coughs) especially with a very effective and positive president like President Moon, who will be in office um, until this spring, I believe, to take the lead in negotiations with the North. Mm-hmm. Uh, South Korea is a remarkable success uh, story for U.S. foreign policy. We don't agonize about Vietnam, from my point of view, as much as we used to, and that's healthy. We don't compliment ourselves as much as we should for working so effectively with the South Korean population. First, to defend them during the Korean War of 1950 to 53, and then... To, um, to engage Eisenhower again in very far-sighted economic development. It's their success, but we really very consciously uh, used our defense resources to build the physical infrastructure, kind of like the national highway system here in the 50s. We created the foundation for what is a tremendously successful economy. They were one of the poorest countries on Earth as recently as the early 60s, thanks to the fact that they were not an industrial country unlike Japan and others and us. They didn't have an industrial revolution at that point, and they had been totally devastated by the Korean War, an absolutely horrible war. And 
terms of just nonstop combat, nonstop destruction, in contrast to Vietnam, for instance. So it's really a great success story. Mm. We shouldn't worry that much about North Korea. Well, right. And North Korea, of course, is, couldn't be a more different situation. At one point you write, in reality, North Korea is literally a disaster area in economic and human terms. The population has endured decades of desperate hardship, including famines. I mean, yeah, a compliment to capitalism again, not because it's wonderful and lovable, but because it works. North mm-hmm. Korea actually has the natural resources, not the South. And mm-hmm. they were, in relative terms, better off economically uh, until the Soviet occupation in 45 and then the Korean War. Right. In some ways, it's about just about the clearest example one could look for in terms of, of, of how foolhardy that system of government is, yes. how much it doesn't work, especially for the people themselves. Let's finish on a very positive note oh, with, a, a, with a column that you wrote very recently about uh, something that has just gone into orbit around our planet, namely the James Webb Telescope. And uh, first of all, uh, I think most of our listeners will need to be told who James Webb was and why uh, his name adorns this uh, spectacular new telescope. He was not a scientist. He was what we used to call a dedicated public servant, a man who spent his career largely in government, going back at least to the Truman administration when he Mm. was a senior State Department official. He was a close political ally of another Washington lifer by the name of Lyndon B. Johnson. (laughs) President Kennedy had put, um, who was quite considerate of his vice president, given the history and situation in the early 1960s. Uh, Richard Nixon really deserves credit for turning the vice presidency into a very meaningful office, and I really want to underscore that. But Kennedy, to his credit, uh, treated Johnson with respect. Uh, and gave him very serious policy responsibilities, including the space program. Mm. And when the president was tragically assassinated in Dallas, uh, President Johnson, to his credit, um, there were no worries about his ability to take over, Mm. as was the case when Truman succeeded Roosevelt, for instance. And he immediately gave... um, a top emphasis to the space program and was able to implement the vision that President Kennedy quite brilliantly articulated. And the close rapport that he, pre-existing that he had with Webb uh, was really a blessing for the space program because Webb was kind of the ultimate can-do guy. Hmm. And he drove the moon program through to success so that Kennedy's very ambitious, uh, very daring promise to Uh, send a crew to the moon and bring them back safely to Earth. President Kennedy was always careful to include. Um, We were able to achieve that, and it was very much Webb's and a mass of men and women working with him. It was really that collective accomplishment, and I think it's quite appropriate to name the latest space telescope for him, the predecessor, the Hubble, which went up, I think, in the early 90s. I believe that uh, Dr. Hubble was more, more the customary space scientist. Hmm. You, uh, and, and, uh, sorry, uh, Hubble uh, was, uh, I believe he spent his career at the um, major observatory near Pasadena in California. He was hmm. an astronomer. Hmm. 
Mm. And that, that seems to be more typical of who we name these things for. Right. And so James but, Webb is kind of the outlier here in terms of being. Yeah, but it's really significant. Yeah, right. And, and I, I think LBJ's redemption partial will be because of the tremendous policy success that he put in place, including the civil rights and voting rights legislation that you regularly bring up, subjects that you regularly bring up on this program. Right. You describe this uh, telescope as being pretty pretty splendid, about the size of a tennis court, displaying, you say, deployment involving over 50 major steps and 178 release mechanisms, just yeah. to kind of give us a sense of how complex and wondrous this 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 device is. But you, you, you finish your column by saying that, that the, the, whole, the whole notion of space exploration is so important even beyond whatever we might kind of discover out there uh, in just the way in which it tends to foster uh, global cooperation. Uh, and I think a lot of us don't always think about that, that the sciences are often uh, an important player when it comes to nations of the world working together. Uh, in ways that they maybe haven't otherwise. Yes, indeed. The space race began, as probably everyone listening knows, with the intense and very dangerous U.S.-Soviet competition in the Cold War. And uh, speaking of Kennedy, he was able in the 60 campaign against Nixon for the White House to exploit the fact that the Soviets had put a space, they'd put a satellite in space first, and they'd had a number of firsts and they got away with lying about just how great their intercontinental ballistic <laughs> missile program was. Um, it was very intense, but especially since the end of the Cold War, we've had growing international cooperation. The International Space Station, which is not so dramatic and not at all sexy and doesn't get in the news <laughs> much unless something goes wrong, that's international collaboration. Uh, for a time, as we de-emphasized the space program waxes and wanes in our democratic system. Uh, for a while, we were totally dependent on Russian rockets, which uh, is very bad from every point of view, not just national security. One other positive dimension of the space program is that we now have private capital and private enterprise working hand in glove with government, not just um, not just as contractors for components of a government space launch. The ubiquitous, uh, unavoidable Elon Musk. <laughs> He's a capitalist with his own space program. And there are others trying hard to emulate him. That's a huge change hmm. from the um, space program of the Cold War period. Although JFK, who doesn't always get such a great press, in uh, at least in superficial terms, in our period... The Communications Satellite Corporation, which is part of the foundation for global communication, for globalization itself, and for space exploration, he made a very uh, dramatic decision to make that a private corporation mm. in 1962. There was tremendous pressure within his Democratic Party to make it one more government agency. And I think Kennedy deserves a lot of credit for, uh, in that area as well, in very practical terms, being far-sighted. Mm. That's another big part of political leader being so. Joe, President Biden, do something far-sighted, okay? At least, <laughs> at least rhetorically. Right. <laughs> yeah. There you go. From here on the sidelines, that's that's the advice you asked for at the start. I did ask for that, and I yeah. uh, appreciate you sharing it. Dr. Art Seer Clausen, distinguished professor of political economy and world business uh, at Carthage College, 
and a monthly visitor to the morning show. I think we've started out uh, 2022 with a bang with this uh, conversation today. I think we touched on some really important topics and issues, and I really appreciate you joining me today on the morning show to be part of today's program. I look forward to uh, all of the visits that are to come. Well, thank you, Professor Berg. Very distinguished as a great guy and a very decent human being. Thank you so much. Good to have you here. Tomorrow on The Morning Show, I'm going to be speaking with uh, one of the country's most renowned defense attorneys who has written a new book called American Injustice, David S. Rudolph, tomorrow on The Morning Show. And we'll be commemorating Holocaust uh, Remembrance Day on Thursday. 